Last week, we, we left Moses in the desert with two million Israelites, and he was praying this prayer for himself and for the children of Israel. And this prayer was, teach us, this is found in Psalm um, 92, which, which you can find, uh, uh, Psalm 90, sorry, which you can find on this bookmark. Is There are lots more at the back. So if you haven't picked one of these up, this is our prayer for 2017 as a church. And what Moses was, was, was praying for himself and for the children of Israel is, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. He was saying, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, your steadfast love, that we may rejoice. He said, show us your work and your power. And then he said, favor us and establish the work of our hands. So Moses' fourfold prayer was, teach us, satisfy us, show us, and favor us. And this was Moses' prayer for his people. And I, I like I just said, I want this to be our prayer for our people, for our church, um, because as the community around us sees a church that is, that is taught, that is satisfied, that is shown, and that is favored by God, then they're going to want in on the action. It's clear. Souls are going to be saved, and God is going to be glorified. So Moses has done his bit. And he's now handed over the reins to Joshua. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be navigating this amazing book, this ancient book that has so much to teach us here today, this book of Joshua. And so I want, what I want you to do is to imagine this sermon series as a trek. And today we're not going to actually start the hike. Instead, today we're going to pour over the maps we're going to plan our route, and we're going to make sure that we know the scenic viewpoints along the way. And we're going to do some background research to make sure that we're prepared as we head into journeying through Joshua next week. So first thing to notice is that this series is called Inheritance, and it's all about the children of Israel walking into their inheritance, actually fighting their way in many cases into their inheritance. Their inheritance wasn't handed to them on a silver platter. They had to work in order to get it in kind of 300-style action that's what it was like. So, so this book is kind of like Braveheart and Ben-Hur and the Ten Commandments and Gladiator all kind of wrapped up in a book. It's super exciting. And uh, as we think about this word inheritance, my prayer for us as we go through this book is, is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 through 20, which says this, that my prayer is that the heart is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, uh, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious, here's the word, inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might. Amen. Now, sometimes when I'm watching a series on Netflix, 
I get waylaid or I leave the series halfway through and then I come back to it later. And uh, in order to start that series again, often what I'll do is I'll go online and I'll look up a synopsis, you know, a short summary of what's happened so far. Uh, And sometimes all that I need to do is to read a few lines and then my memory is jogged and I, yep, that's so-and-so, yep, he was with her, that was happening, this happened to him, etc., etc. And, uh, or sometimes I'll be reading a fantasy series, I love reading fantasy books, you know, like dragons and Lord of the Rings and epic treks and dwarves and stuff like that. And, uh, and, but, but, but the thing with reading books with, with series is that sometimes I'm reading it as the author's writing it. And so I'll get to the end of book one and he's not yet written book two. And so I'll be kind of left adrift for a number of months, even years until he actually gets around to writing it. And so once again, I need to read that summary. I need to read that synopsis. I remember when the Harry Potter uh, series was being written, is that when each book came out, that there would be queues and queues of people outside you know, the bookstores waiting for the book to be released because it was super exciting, ready to get stuck back into the world of Hogwarts. And uh, so when book two has come out, I'm usually quite hazy, and so once again, I'll read a synopsis, I'll, I'll read some wiki which is online explaining who is who and what is what, and within two shakes of a lamb tail, I'm up to speed again. Now, the thing about a synopsis is it doesn't replace the TV show, it doesn't replace the book itself, uh, because it wouldn't be a satisfying experience to just read a synopsis and to say, that's it, I'm done, I, I know all that is you know, to know about this book or this show. Um, you, you know, you still need to invest in the complexity of the story, in the, in the arc, in the characters. Um, and the same is with the books of the Bible, is that it's good for the soul and for the mind and the heart is to read through entire books of the Bible in big chunks, so to keep the story flowing nicely. But it's also good to get a synopsis of the book um, and for most books in the Bible, in fact, for all of the books of the Bible, you can find a key verse or a key thought that acts as a memory jogger to the rest of the book, a synopsis, if you will. And often this verse will unpack the intention of the author. It will unpack the overarching theme of the book, just like someone summing up a TV show or a book uh, sums up that show in a few lines. And Joshua is no exception But the question is, what is the key verse? And there are different people who think that different verses are the key verse. And so one of the ones that we might leap to immediately would be Joshua 1 verse 9, which is, Have I not commanded you? Be strong, courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, now that's a good candidate for the synopsis verse or the key verse of this book. Um, and this is the verse that actually Linda Tapper sewed onto our quilt. Where are you, Linda? There. And, and it, it was the one that, that, that we took on the mission field with us. And, uh, and it was the one that, that actually helped us through a ton of hard times right at the start of our mission experience. But for our purposes, what I want to suggest as being the synopsis verse, or the key verse, is Joshua 1 verse 5. If you have your Bible, then please feel free to turn to it. But what Joshua chapter 1 verse 5 says is, um, so, sorry, 6, 
1 verse 6 is, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And why I like this verse, and why I think it's a good candidate for the key verse um, um, role, is, is because it pairs a command to, to Joshua to be courageous and brave um, that, that he's the, and it also tells him that he's the guy for the job. So it's saying, be courageous, you're the man. You know, be brave, you're the person. And it also gives us a, an idea what to expect through the rest of the book. Radical trust and radical obedience. Because here's the long and short of it, is that Joshua could not have done what he did without the incredible promise of God's presence with him. And I know that for many of us, that knowing that God is with us, knowing that he's walking alongside us, enables us to go through incredible hardship and tough times that we could never do without that. And so as we journey through the book of Joshua, I want you to keep Joshua 1 verse 5 handy. I want you to stick it in your pocket. I want you to maybe underline it in your Bible and to write a date on it. And every now and again, you can bring out Joshua chapter 1 verse 5 and check our progress as we work through the rest of the book. Because this book is about God making good on his promises and bringing those who are his into their inheritance. So even though this book is named after Joshua, it's not the first time that we meet Joshua. Uh, In fact, think back to that moment when the children of Israel first come up to the borders of the promised land and then they run away because they're afraid. That happened 40 years earlier. He was there. He was present, but he wasn't one of the voices telling people to turn around and to, and to run. He was 50% of the yes vote. He was one of only two people who said, we can do this. We can go into the promised land. We can take it because God is on our side. Only he and Caleb were the yes vote. And then in Numbers chapter 13, we read that 10 of the spies returned with this report. Numbers chapter 13 Uh, verse 27 it says that the land flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit so if you can imagine like an exhibit a uh, which was a bunch of grapes so big that it took two men to carry it and so if you can imagine having that with a glass of wine and your cheese board this was an epic bunch of grapes but they said the people are strong the cities are fortified and very large there are tons of tribes there so let's leave well enough alone but then Caleb said and I guess Joshua would have been with him said no let's go we can do this and so this encounter ended with this massive mutiny and this this nationwide call for a midterm re-election to choose someone else who could lead them back to Egypt and so God grounds them into the desert for 40 years to think about what they've done now, imagine how, how soul-destroying that this would have been for Joshua and for Caleb. They were sent away with the rest of the Israelites, condemned to 40 years of wandering. Yesterday, I was traveling home from Fort Lauderdale from a conference, and I could feel myself getting a little bit antsy when I learned that my first flight was delayed because a passenger, an unknown, unnamed passenger, uh, was late for this plane, and so they waited for her, him. Why did I say her? Anyway, whoever it was, maybe I had that image in my mind. And uh, 
And what that meant is that I had literally 10 minutes from when that plane arrived to make my next connection, uh, which got me a, a little bit frustrated. Now, imagine spending 40 years with the 10 co-spies who had said, who had convinced the people of Israel to reject their inheritance of the promised land. Imagine spending 40 years with 2 million other people who had said no. Imagine being trained up to lead these people. It could not have been easy. And I could imagine, you know, Joshua and Caleb thinking, we could have been home by now. We could have all been settled in. And here we are trudging day in and day out. And maybe Joshua struggled with thoughts of of, of bitterness, of frustration. And I imagine that he had to bite back that cynical retort every now and again. Yet we could have been chowing down on the all-you-can-eat meal at the Milk and Honey restaurant. And yet here we are eating the equivalent of the airline's cheddar snacks for 40 years. You see, we we think that our, our decisions only affect ourselves, that our faith or lack of faith in God only impacts us. And we reason that, that whether or not we develop a trust relationship with God, whether or not we practice obedience, well, that's a private affair. But what Joshua shows us is that that's not the case, that this fearful report from just 10 people led to mass hysteria and panic, which leads to God putting the nicks on these people getting their inheritance, that their mindset in God's thinking, this is what I understand, is that the mindset is too ingrained. He needs a new generation to take him up on his offer. And this man is a key player in God's story of redemption and rescue taking place. This man, Joshua, not, not, not only for the people of Israel, but for us. And so it's important to to look at this story, to, to look at this historical account, and to see what part did he play and how did God use him. So what I want is to take a few moments just to look at a couple of the defining moments recorded in the Bible that show us what kind of man was Joshua and maybe why was he the sort of guy that God uses. And, and what I hope is that as we listen to these accounts that it starts to stir up within us a, a heart that says, I would love to be that kind of person. I would love for God to use me in the same way that he used God. Uh, he, he used uh, Joshua then. Now, the thing is, it might not be for taking over cities because that kind of thing is frowned on in the 21st century. But what God is looking for is for people who are courageous and who trust him enough to do things that are unprecedented and unexpected. And so the first time that we encounter Joshua is in Exodus chapter 17. And so this is a flashback. And so I want you to imagine that this picture is, is grayscale with maybe some blemishes and scratches flickering across the scene. And uh, what we see in Exodus chapter 17 verse 9 is that Joshua is given the task of deciding who's going to be in the army to fight against the Amalekites. And while Moses is praying with his hands raised high up on top of the hill, General Josh is down in the valley below, shoulder to shoulder with his men, engaged in hand-to-hand combat with an enemy army. And Moses' prayer up on the hill, combined with Joshua's action, leads to this verse in Exodus 17, verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. 
And so it's not a huge surprise with this track record that Joshua was God's man for leading the charge into the promised land. Now, if we turn to Exodus chapter 24, verse 12, this is prior to the failed first attempt at entering the promised land, that, that, that Joshua was the only person to accompany Moses up onto the top of Mount Sinai. And so we see this. It says this in Exodus 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. This is the trust that Moses had in him. He was the only other person to go up into the, into the unveiled glory of God up there on the mountain. And there's another incident in Numbers chapter 11, verse 26, where there's some unsanctioned prophecy going on in the Israelite camp by these two guys called Eldad and Medad. And, uh, and Joshua gets a bit hot under the collar because it's unsanctioned prophecy. This shouldn't be happening. And so he goes and tells Moses to make them stop. And Moses gently corrects him by telling him that if God is working, it's best to get out of the way. And then in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18, we see God telling Moses to set apart and start preparing his successor. And of course, as with any wandering nation of two million people, you need a clear line of succession. Because if you don't have a clear line of succession, then that nation of two million people splits into a, a ragtag group of warring tribes. And so the person that God has set apart to lead this nation of vagabonds is Joshua as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse... Yes. No, this is Numbers chapter 17, verse 18. Good. Um, And it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eliezer, the priest, and all the congregation, and you, you shall commission him in your sight. You shall... Invest in him, invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And then finally, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 1, we read this moment where Moses fades into the background and Joshua steps into the limelight. Where it says this Moses said to Israel, I'm 120 years old. He lived a good life. You know, that's, that's quite good. 120, you've not yet retired. And he said, I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan, which is it's a punishment for, uh, for something that he, he did without faith earlier on in his life. Uh, verse 3, the Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over as your head as the Lord has spoken. And then verse 7 says this, Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, I don't know what this looked like, you know, um, if there were representative groups, or if the whole two million was there, they had no speaker system. I don't know how this worked. But Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with his people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is God who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. 
So that's a little insight into the kind of man that God raised up in order to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And reading through a book like Joshua can be a bit intimidating. So it's good, as it were, for us to get a bit of the lay of the land, uh, like a 50,000 foot view down. And so what we will find as we work our way through this book is that the first few chapters, chapters one through five, recount for us the crossing of the Jordan and going into the promised land itself. <coughs> and then chapter six through 12 is all about the taking of the land. First the northern part and then the southern part. And then chapters 13 through through 21 show us how the dividing of the land went on, this for this tribe, this for this tribe, so on and so forth. And then the book ends with a couple of speeches from, from Joshua to the people of Israel as they stand in this brave new world full of excitement and uncertainty. So what I want us to consider Joshua like is like moving into a new house. First, the family crosses over the threshold. Then the family cleans the house. Then the rooms get assigned And then finally, dad calls a meeting to mark that moment of newness and maybe to lay down a few house rules so that everyone's on the same page. Now, if you've ever stepped into a role that you felt unqualified for, then Joshua is the guy for you. This week I was at a World Vision conference and this guy, this, this, this MC, whose name is amazingly Rusty Funk, I can't think of a better name, and that's his actual name, that's not like a, a nom de plume or a stage name, but his name is Rusty Funk and he was standing up there as the MC in front of us and he was visibly nervous because he was standing in front of 350 pastors, but he told us that God had given him a word in preparation for, for, for this event. And he said that, that, that the word that God gave him is that God loves our unqualifications. God loves our unqualifications. And I think that he's probably right that God does love our unqualifications, both yours and mine. And my experience, or one of my many experiences in, in God loving my unqualifications, was when I took on the role of personnel manager on the MV Logos Hope. I was absolutely petrified. Like, I've never felt so inadequate and just wrecked with nervousness as I was then. And so for the first six months, I hardly felt like I was keeping my head above water. And I felt so unqualified. In fact, I started to get angry at the people that thought I was able to do the job, who'd invited me, you know? Um, who, who, who were they with such, such uh, free abandon to throw me into the deep end with weights shackled onto my feet. That's how I felt. And yet now I would never trade that experience that I had for anything because God had to keep on coming and filling in the gaps of my inad- in- in- inadequacy and failure. He proved himself absolutely faithful. And there was another guy at the conference, a guy called Mike Michael Chitwood at the conference who said this, and I think it's such a good quote, and if you're going to write down anything, write down this. He said, almost every amazing thing that God has for us in this life is on the other side of fear. Almost every amazing thing that God has for us in this life is on the other side of fear. And I think that in saying that, he hit the nail on the head. Because that's my experience from marriage to missions to having kids 
to leaving North Gore to returning back to North Gore. Every step has involved faith. And, it's, and why does it involve faith? Because it's involved fear. Almost every amazing thing that God has, to, has for us in this life is on the other side of fear. So what amazing things are you missing out on because it's on the other side of fear? See, because that's what Joshua had to face. And that's what we have to uh, face also. But his faith to lead the Israelites into the promised land stemmed from the fact that he'd already placed himself in situations where he saw God working. Fighting armies, spying out land, seeing God's glory on Mount Sinai. But, but, but there's another reason why. It wasn't just about because he'd done crazy stuff for God. It was because he knew God. As we read in Exodus chapter 33, verse, verse, verse 11, where it says this, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is while they're out in the desert. And then when Moses turned again into the camp, he, he left the tent, his tent of meeting. His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So it wasn't just gifts that led Joshua into this life of adventure. It was being in God's presence. It was worshipping because skills and natural talent will only take you so far. And then you'll either plateau or you'll be exposed for the frail human being that you are. But what Joshua did was that he refuses. He refused to be a man of just skill or talent. He, de- he, he determined to be a man that would not leave the tent where the presence of God was. So what about you? And what about me? And like I've already mentioned, is, is, is that this book can seem rather daunting and overwhelming and big in the same way that the the, the promised land looked big and daunting and overwhelming for the children of Israel. But we know that they missed out on a huge blessing 40 years earlier because they looked at the task in front of them, their, their hearts quailed within them, and they turned around. And reading the Bible can be intimidating for us as well. And I think that there are two fears that Joshua helps us overcome. The first is the fear of embarrassing God. And what I mean by this is that we think we have this little voice. I, I have it, and I'd be surprised if you don't, is that we have this little voice in the back of our minds. What happens if the Bible cannot stand up under scrutiny? We're afraid that if we dig maybe too deep, that we're going to dig up some things that, frankly, God does not want us you know, to see. We're afraid of asking him a question that maybe he can't answer. And so we, we don't ask him because we're afraid of embarrassing him. But let's not treat God this way. There's nothing for us to be afraid of. We can prod and poke and ask and expose and doubt and query. Because I don't believe that God's up there chewing his divine fingernails saying, no, please don't go there. Don't ask that question. Don't follow that line of inquiry. As if all of a sudden we're suddenly going to expose that God's a bit of a fraud. Because God's not the Wizard of Oz. We're not going to one day push down a screen and suddenly find out that God's just this cowardly little being that's been wowing us with a light show and with smoke and mirrors. So we demonstrate our trust when we come to God with our questions and our doubts. And the book of Joshua will cause us 
to ask some pretty significant questions. But there's this author that I'm reading at the moment called Nancy Piercy, and she says this, Scripture gives the intellectual resources to answer any question with confidence. And she's, she has an amazing mind. Scripture gives the intellectual resources to answer any questions with confidence. And so, and so this first fear that keeps us from really getting into Scripture, this fear of embarrassing God, is a fear without foundation. But the second fear that we may have is not of embarrassing God, but of being embarrassed maybe by God. Because as we go through this book, we're going to encounter a God who treads on the toes of our 21st century sensibilities. And maybe what we're going to find out is that this God is not what we thought he was like. You see, we like to compartmentalize. We like to say, yeah, that was the angry God of the Old Testament, and Jesus is the nice God of the New Testament, as if God went to anger management classes or started practicing yoga or something like that. And we can be tempted to treat God as a family member who, you know, says the wrong things in public and can be a bit embarrassing. You know, the one that you kind of make, want to make excuses for, that you want to tell the person that they've just said an inappropriate thing to. Uh, sorry, they're not actually usually like that. I wish you could actually get to know them and realize they're rather nice. And so as we read through this book, we're going to be facing off against this temptation. That, temp- that temptation either to be embarrassed for God or to be embarrassed by God. And that's why I love the book of Joshua. With fear and trembling, I'm saying this. That's, this is why I love this book, because it forces us to ask deep questions. And as we go deep, we start to discover the glory of God. Remember, almost every amazing thing that God has for us is on the other side of fear. And that includes the book of Joshua. And so my challenge to you is to read the book of Joshua, to read it all the way through, to read one chapter a day, and in less than a month, you'll have read through the whole book. And as you're reading, what I want you to do is to note your questions, your queries, your concerns, um, what maybe you don't understand, and, and send me an email and say, hey, Dan, I'm not sure about this part. Please explain Because this will help me to start wrestling through and praying through the book of Joshua and start researching the right things. Because my goal is that by the end of the book of Joshua, is that rather than it being a book that we avoid, I want it to be a book that we cherish and that we love. And I I want us to cherish and love the God that we see in the book of Joshua. Because the God of Joshua is exactly the same as the God of the disciples. So... My challenge is for you to read the book. Read it in the message or read it in the New Living Translation. Something that's easy to read so that you can keep that narrative flow going. And then send me your questions and your thoughts. So in closing, this book is about inheritance. It's about inheritance. It's about the inheritance of the Israelites. It's about the inheritance of Joshua and Caleb. And through Jesus Christ, it's also about our inheritance. I was in Florida, like I said. And as I was walking along the, 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 the beach, which was a, a rare pleasure for me, you know, to be walking along the beach, putting my sand, my, 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 my feet in the water. And I saw bits and pieces of coral, of shell, and of seaweed. And it was absolutely lovely. But there's a 
huge difference between me walking along the beachfront, picking up a piece of dead coral, and the diver who sees the beauty of the fish swimming in and out of the living coral. And what is the difference? It's that the diver has decided to go deep. For me to wander along the seafront requires little investment, but you know the diver has to want to go deep enough that they get the equipment, that they learn how to dive, that they get the certificates, etc., etc. And I love walking through the woods here with Wendy and the girls and Ollie. And if you follow me on Instagram or we're friends on Facebook, you've probably worked that out. But what I've realized is that much as I love walking through the woods in the Canadian winter, that there's a breed of people, of Canadians, who see a different side to the winter that I will never see. And who are these people? These people are the skidoos. Why is this? Because the sled allows them to get far out into the countryside. It takes them off the main roads. It takes them off the main paths into the places that the rest of us will never get to see. They've invested in the machinery and the clothing that can take them much deeper into the bush than I will ever go. And so Joshua is going to allow us to go deep. It's going to get us out into the boonies so that we see the glory of the Lord in the way that we would never have seen if we stick to the main roads and the A roads and the highways. It will help us to see a different side of God than if we just read our daily bread five minutes every day. There's this band from the 90s, I think it was, called TLC. And they're actually pretty good. And uh, they sang this song which said, Don't go chasing waterfalls. Please stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. But I'm going to tell you not to listen to TLC. Because when it comes to God, go chase those waterfalls. Go take a dive off the edge. Go into those plunge pools. Go off piste. Dive deep. Take a trip across country as we discover our inheritance. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And lastly, my prayer for you. Let's read this all together, if you can make out the uh, font size. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places.